This is Keywords and I'm Zoe Cummins. In this episode, we'll soak you in sounds all prompted by the keyword surface tension. You'll hear work by Elaine Feeney, Kevin Brew, Alice Lyons, Sarah Ingersoll, Tanya O'Sullivan, Dara Fleming and Michael Higgins. Tanya O'Sullivan's slippery poem is about books that have that sort of marbling effect on their cover. It's created by ink spilled on water on the surface of paper. And the process is called suminagashi after the Japanese art. You are the firm embrace of molecules at the interface. I am a bud of vermilion ink flowering on surfactant, racing to the edges in ever-thinning circles, seeking out fragility, rips, ruptures, always thwarted by fluid forces and the silken breath of our suminigashi master, whirling blood-red lines and pinewood soot into marbled chaos. And you are impervious still as he steals my veined imprint with a fleeting touch. Tanya O'Sullivan there. Those rips, ruptures and fluid forces of the book cover remind us of the powerful connection between art and science. The fluid forces of memory is the theme of Elaine Feeney's poem. We sometimes imprint memories from different times onto each other. Our brains blend fact and fiction as time passes and we strain to recall the murky truth. Now, if now only, is read by Tara Bradnock. Down by the river Corrib, the water tense like glass. Predictable simile. Less predictable. A girl teaching a boy how to kayak. And as they move shakily, she gently slaps him with the paddle. I stare. A bad habit, I know. The water made this city's bruise, and a duck with a forest green head sideways in the currents trying something new. They all seem so happy among the water lilies as the oar splits the tension. Wait, there are no water lilies, only my pastel memory of Monet's painting. She circles and he turns back to her, calls out, creates ripples and I note some cow parsley on the bank and a little happy gorse. Until there is nothing only this moment, and then they disappear under the stone bridge, followed by the duck. And I am alone now, and ever so quiet, and I think it's almost noon, and soon my shadow will disappear. How refreshing. And perhaps I too will have conquered this day, just even this one, one by one. I wrap myself inside the duck's green head, thinking of how much I loved a boy too. One afternoon in San Francisco, how the autumn sun blared and now, the blubbery seals down on Pier 39, how they too moved on. As we all slip in and out of remembered scenes, time blurs and months and moments dissolve into one another. Kevin Brew is a radio producer and musician. In this next piece, Print Through, he brings us back to his early days when he was learning to make and edit radio and listen to the echoes of voices on tape. 
Rewinding to 25 years ago, to when I was in radio college, to when I was learning to edit on a reel-to-reel tape machine. As an angst-ridden, mature student worried about the future, my hands steadied to the lovely task of editing quarter-inch tape, of lacing the rust-coloured tape around the spools, of listening to the tape as it travels past the playhead so that a message printed in magnetic particles was translated into something I could listen to, a friendly voice. Once upon a time, a man coughed. He coughed mid-sentence into a microphone, but with my trusty blade, I could make the cut. I could make that cough not happen. Then I heard a sentence that would be better at the end. So I cut out that piece of tape and wore the sentence around my neck. Fast forwarding the conversation to a moment marked in white pencil and stitching in the perfect ending, which had failed to take place in real life. I recycled the tape a couple of times so that you could sometimes hear a muffled echo of previous interviews under the most recent one. A ghost from another recording ceremony. A voice of protest against the callous decision to reuse this tape. When we listen to very old tapes, there were blemishes. These were caused by something called print-through. Particles on adjacent layers of the tape became unstable, so that when the tape was played, you'd hear the person speaking, but also an echo of what they just said, or what they were about to say, as if they were being prompted or heckled by themselves. These echoes caused by flaws on the tape felt like the workings of the mind, the doubts underneath what we're saying out loud, the memories printed on other memories. I remember those radio college days in the cosy space of the soundproof studio, carpets on the floors, carpets on the walls, the bockety tapes and their warm way of capturing the human voice. I remember my radio tutor. He was a master of the cut and splice, now since passed away. I remember our deep chats in the pub and also the friction between tutor and tutee. But now I see him. He falls into a trance. Nicotine fingers at the Studer tape machine wearing a sentence around his neck. His German vocabulary including the word for an early tape machine. Tonschreiber, meaning sound writer.
The image of a sentence draped around a neck like a scarf will stay with me for a long time. It's a new way to see sound. We often see sound shown in waves, kind of like a line on a heart monitor. But actually, if we could see sound, it would probably look more like a kaleidoscopic snowflake or 3D holographic bubble. Each sound with its own unique pattern, depending on the frequency. Each word or note creates a different shape or blob. A liquid crystal jellyfish of sounds that ripples and undulates as each noise makes itself move within itself. You can see those patterns with sound on water, a stereo blares or a frog croaks and interrupts the still plane of a pond and writes sounds across its surface. In our next piece, filmmaker and writer Sarah Ingersoll looks at this week's keyword, surface tension, in two ways. Through the life cycle of frogs, but also through family. She was born in Cavan, but her family lived many places, including Ireland and the US. The tadpole lament delves into the freedom and fear of leaving home and childhood behind. In Durango, Colorado, we lived in a wooden house in the mountains. The smells are dry in the forest up there, all pine needles and dirt, birch bark and rocks. From the deck, you could look out across a steep ravine with a slip of a stream way at the very bottom dividing the mountain. Once there was a yellow mountain lion prowling on the other side who stopped to look at us. Down the dusty road was a pond where us kids used to go. I was too little to go in the water, but we would gather slimy frog spawn to put in a jar brought especially. We then transposed its contents carefully into the big jar on the porch where an environment was built and watched the eggs transform. First grew tails that disappeared, then eyes, legs, and arms until they had morphed into perfect minuscule frogs that burst through their thinning membrane. It was magic. It's three decades later. I live in a wooden house again, the first since that one years ago in Durango. It's on the west coast here in Ireland and is also perched high on a hillside. But instead of a dry, dusty forest, I look out across inlets and islands licked and lapped at by the sea. There's a cat that slinks through the fields at dusk, a gigantic white tom who stops to look at me. This is the first house I've lived in on my own, the first place I've slept without the familiar fluctuations of family. I gather fallen branches to feed the little stove. I pick the furled tips of fiddlehead ferns that line the boreen to saute in butter. I push my limbs out one by one into empty rooms. The mornings are a wonder with their silence. It's a world away from the cacophony of our childhood. We stuck together as we grew, like frog eggs in a jar, our evolving selves shaping one another. We moved from house to house and from town to town so often that packing up belongings into hastily taped together cardboard boxes from the grocery store became seasonal, like the coming of spring or winter, constant and inescapable. It's normal for families to eventually part, but our disintegration occurred early and quickly. An affair and cancer, betrayal and mortality. It was so sudden and so thorough that it wasn't clear until years later that our final moment as a whole was gone. A kind of shock takes hold when a family is sundered, a disbelief that the world you thought you belonged to could so quickly go extinct. For a time, I followed my brothers and sister to strange cities, 
other countries over oceans, a repeat of our nomadic childhood days. My dad always told us the grass would be greener somewhere else, anywhere else. So drifting became a habit impossible to break. I couldn't find my way back to a place I knew. Frogs will try to migrate back to their birthplace in order to spawn again, but only if they aren't too far away. It's easy to get lost. There's an overgrown pond next to my front step. The water's so dark and murky, it's impossible to tell how deep its taproot sinks. Its fish ignore me except to occasionally flash their bellies in sudden golden glimmers, a secret glimpse into another world. One day, a green and yellow frog, near invisible beneath a leaf, poked out a tiny snout and alerted me to a new addition, a quivering mass of billowing frog eggs clouding the surface of the water, a thousand eyes gazing upward into this world from the other. A sense memory hits me, and for the first time in decades I remember, the rough wood of the splintered porch in Durango and the pungent smell of pond water in a jar. An old excitement grows as I watch the spots in the center of the eggs get darker and begin their transmutation from perfect silent circles to misshapen lumps that shudder and judder with life. First will grow tails that will disappear, then eyes and legs and arms until, like magic, they're gone. The fish below were biding their time. This morning, every single last egg has disappeared from the water, devoured just as they ripened into almost frogs. The fish continue to slither past one another and serenely flash their bellies, a glimpse into another world. Midweek, I often find myself at the sidelines of one or another of my children's activities, like the pool. I see my daughter dive first into the water, heading towards the deep end. She turns face up to the ceiling, breaking through the quiet of the water in a thunderous backstroke. I admire the strength and think how clever to have rhythmically hauled her way through the water with her own power, moving without looking, tearing her way across the surface. All that effort, all that science, but really, all that grace. The other children join her in the pool, chopping through the already churned up water, and I look away. But that brilliant image is easily recalled for me. It's clear and bright and right there even when I close my eyes. In our next piece, Dara Fleming writes a letter. He calls for a cure for the common ageing of the mind. He wants to ease the tension between what we see in our mind's eye and how, without notice, we lose focus and the people we know blur in our memory. To whom it is of concern, do you think the mind's eye loses focus over time, like the way standardised do? Does age force your mind's eye to recoil, to blur, to recede, to fail, essentially? Is that something that happens? Like, is there a scientist in a lab somewhere as we speak, toiling away to make some sort of corrective contraption for the mind's eye? And if there isn't a scientist doing this currently, should there be? Is that a job we should collectively assign? We could have a referendum. We could go door to door and ask people if they think saving the mind's eye from the decay of time might be a good use of our finite resources. We might even set up an award, a bursary, funding even to incentivize a generation of scientists to make something akin to corrective glasses for our mind's eye, so that as we age, we don't forget things or lose focus or begin to misremember or think we're in a place we're not currently in. 
a cure as such for common aging of the mind. If there really is an eye up there, why isn't there something like laser eye surgery for this particular eye? Should we have a vote to see if this eye is worth saving like all the other eyes for which we go above and beyond for? I only ask because when I was much younger and during times when my love was very far away from me, I could still picture her perfectly for years if needed. Her image crisp, her voice crystallized. But now when she is even gone for just a handful of minutes at a time, her face begins to blur and smudge like ink. The sounds of her words fade and distort like old CDs. And this is how I know, I think, that the mind's eye ages, and I was just wondering if we could do anything at all to fix that. I await your response. M. In her next piece in this episode of Keywords, Wild Rhubarb, Alice Lyons writes in memory of the poet Kieran Carson, who died in October 2019. She recalls his presence and writing, and how his words gave her a new way to view the world. This piece contains strong language, but also beautiful language as we follow Alice on an errand through Sligo, after she receives some news. After reading his email, the only thing that made sense was to jump on the bike and search for a bottle of wild rhubarb cleaning spray, the scent that caused everyone in the office to come to their senses and remark, Hmm, what's that? So I went on a mission. I rode into the city core and locked up in front of Call of the Wild, walked to Tesco to no avail. So I unlocked and pedaled up Gallows Hill to home base and inquired beneath the information signboard. The clerk said she needed a code, which I said I could fetch for her back in the cleaning section. And she said, if there's a three at the end, they're discontinued. But if there's no three, they're just out of stock. It could be next week or the week after that. There was no three. So I told her I'll check back and headed for the exit. I freewheeled down Pierce Road and yelled, Fuck! when out of earshot of passers-by. I thought maybe the lines, the Atlantic was particularly chaotic, came to me from the swim and the storm aftermath that morning. And then I thought maybe better than chaotic was anarchic. Your speech, those final glottal stops in the emphatic northern pronunciation and your sartorial perfect pitch. We'd swum from the man-made pool at Deadman's Point, a set of concrete planes with steps tacked in a gesture of naive hope that they'd withstand the fury of the Atlantic onto layers of ancient sedimentary rock, blackened with mussels, lichen, and bladder rack we gingerly stepped down into the thrashing and churning salt water, much like our language, from which you gingerly plucked one word, fetch, that did so much 
boomerang, heavy lifting for you. How it both goes after and brings back. And in Irish folklore is a spectral double of a living person which, when sighted, is an omen of impending death and in some accounts of a very long extended life, perhaps both. Yes, I would say definitely perhaps both. It being March, we swam under the watch of a sky-high skylark, hovering, releasing its high-pitched modem shriek into the briny low cloud of a Friday. There had been a helicopter hovering too, probably the RNLI, either going or coming back from a Spanish fishing vessel rescue. At the sight of it, firing off in the synapses nestled in the deep brain, was the thug, thug of the ever-present watchers from Spin Cycle in your breaking news, and how when they'd cleared off there was more blue space above your head, you were rinsed clean. There are so many words and things in the world imbued with resonance because you see them and you name them, because you put in the time and the work and the magic, and you keep going and you never leave off. There wasn't a bottle of wild rhubarb cleaning spray to be had in Sligo Town on Friday, so I made for home, my red tail light blinking in the weakening daylight. At the busy junction near Salmon Point, from atop a streetlight, a blackbird fluted. The bird was positioned in a way that it looked like part of the light's anatomy. Its beak was facing Nocnaray, and the sky was pinkening. At the bend, beside the unofficial footpath to the Cartran estate, where at low tide are the shopping carts and traffic cones, sunk in the harbor sludge like a local La Brea tar pit. Another blackbird gave its socks from deep within beach hedging. I stood and listened as rush-hour cars whizzed by, and I stayed standing as I pedaled uphill on the Ross's Point Road. At the brow of the hill, another blackbird, directly overhead on an ESB line, twirled his tangled music. It was an above-the-ground blackbird railroad, each stationmaster giving the signal it was safe to go ahead to the next post. I carried on home to make dinner, cycling blackbird by blackbird. March 17, 2019 Thanks to Gallery Press for permission to quote Kieran Carson. And thanks to all the writers and contributors who wrote and recorded pieces for this episode. If you want to listen back to any episodes of Keywords, they're online at rte.ie and also available as a podcast. Thanks to the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland Sound and Vision Fund for supporting this series. See you next week on Keywords for more self-recorded writing and sounds. We'll leave you this evening with a poem by poet Michael Higgins. He lives in Mexico and he explores the historical and cultural tensions between European and indigenous people from the Americas. We join him on the side of a volcano that threatens to erupt at any minute. There, a particular species of rabbit, the teperingo, lives on its unstable ground. You were munching grass when the strangers came, hopping in the shadow of the mountains, 
Volcanic lords who even in repose loomed with immensity against the sky. On the grass and tree-lined slopes you called home, you beat your paws upon the ash-strewn ground, keeping time with tremors and eruptions. You nibbled in small shrubs and cocked your ear towards the hidden caves where lightning-struck priests whispered entreaties to the weather gods and made imaginative offerings. To the valley of the twin guardians, whose bounty offered fertile soil and rain, streams and harvests, solace for the spirit for a people who knew it a haven in a land often barren and blasted, a perversion of Prometheus came, a dark reflection, no kindly titan, but one sulphur-born and sulphur-seeking. The equanimity of those old gods, those mountain hosts, would be their undoing. The gift of powder would come to be forged into a tool of slaughter and bondage. Centuries have passed and you still reside. The shadows lighten on your mountain home. The grass has grown back as it always does. And life, it seems, is looking up for the gentle and curious Teperingo. <laughs>